talking and I'm not and I'm just <laughs> And then I'm talking <laughs> No, but wait, wait, I have something for him. Boom, you get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales Podcast. Concentrate on the news. It's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Moses Soria. With me to my left is my brother, Josh. Yo. With me to my right is Archie. Hello, hello. And today is the finale of our Bell Witch series. Is, <gasps> dun, dun, dun. This is, is it, right? three. This is, is it. This is the end. I don't think you guys are ready for this. Uh, I don't think anybody is ready for this. Well, we're about to find out. So uh, let's do this. I want to know what's next. All right. Yep. It's happened. So let's get on with the show. So identical to Dr. Mize's visit, the witch kept quiet for some time, undoubtedly taking precautionary measures in sizing up this new visitor to the bell house. And for the first day, Old Kate made none of her customary entrances, but instead opted into making enough sounds within the walls to have Mr. Williams think that all of their fears and concerted uproar had been caused by mice. And each time a strange noise occurred, it was near a member of the family. Remember, at this point, now they have a detective at their house. Remember, the detective came, the detective came he's like, look, I'm going to help you guys out, not because I want to be nice. Not because I give a shit about any of you, but because I know if I solve this, it'll look good on my resume. Look here, bitch. Trying to get a promotion? This is my way to do it. And that's exactly what he did. So the detective came into the Bell family home with a preconceived notion of all this being a ruse. Whether or not the Bells were the culprits was yet to be seen. The detective did not believe the Bells when they told him about the witch's playful nature. And Richard, our narrator, found out firsthand the depths the detective's distrust so on the first day after the detective's arrival he went on a walk and found richard and james johnston talking near the schoolhouse he told them they better stay away from the bells and should think twice about keeping them as friends as he suspects that they're all in it together to create this silly witch john asked him what could be their purpose and the detective replied with the sole purpose of making a fortune hmm. it did no good for them to explain how john bell had taken the burden of feeding all the witnesses and never taking a cent from a single stranger. It's false charity, calculated to make them seem all the greater victims. You'll see what they ask when someone wants to publish their story. I have found nothing because there is nothing to find. Mr. Johnson took great offense, and as immediately after the detective continued on his walk, he went straight to John Bell, to relay what he had just said. But just as Mr. Johnson made himself to John Bell, neither of them were very surprised to hear old Kate's voice sounding in their ear. <laughs> Don't do a thing, John. You leave this imposter to me. I will soon show him just what I am made of. And you will see that he is not very smart at all. So normally the local visitors will make their way back home by 9 o'clock. Good job, Achi. That was a good job. But on this night, though, many stayed behind 
to hope that old Kate had a big show in store for the detective. <laughs> so usually the people that were just chilling in there are like, all right, it's time to go home. We usually bounce. But tonight they're like, nah, we're going to stick a while. We have a feeling something's going to happen. We got fresh meat in the house. Like, so I heard he's new? Oh, he's new. Uh, like, oh, he's so new. you're the new guy. Ooh. He's a new guy. All right, he's a new guy. So Lucy and Betsy dragged out the straw mattresses <laughs> no, <they didn't. laughs> and laid them out in the parlor and living rooms. In the center of one of these arrangements was Mr. Williams. All the lights were off, and one by one, they all drifted to sleep. Around midnight, the detective was awakened by a great mass pressing up against his chest and stomach. He cried out, more in annoyance than in fear, and called for candles to be lit to expose the human culprit. While everyone around were slowly waking up, Williams began to shout, begging for help. His arms had been pinned above both sides of his head, and his face was being punched and scratched. So, Mr. Detective, which of the bells do you think is on top of you? And before Williams could answer, he was again being hit and scratched in the face. It took about a minute for everyone in the room to be awakened and to light their candles. But the moment the candle's beam fell on the detective, the weight came off him and the punching and scratching stopped. Williams immediately sat up and started sucking down air, staring at everybody in the room, believing they all had conspired against him. When he suddenly heard in his ear, Don't go blaming them. Mr. Williams jumped up with a loud shriek. And everyone backed away, not wanting to get in the way of any abuse old Kate might lay upon the detective. They know. They You're know. on your own, bro. And they you know. know Betsy's in the back like, okay. She's like, I feel your pain. Now go sit in that chair like a good boy. And maybe I will knock your head off. And he did just that. He clutched the lit candle the whole night, shaking in fear. Every few minutes, old Kate would whisper in his ears, taunting him. <laughs> and as soon as the first rays of dawn appeared, Williams was out of the house and away from the farm. That's it. That was it. <laughs> that was it. I expected him to do a little bit more. You know, I thought he was going to be our hero. Those who saw him after the not. attack claimed that he was the most frightened individual had ever laid their eyes on. Hell yeah. Not even the doctor. Finally, the greatest of Tennessee sons visited the Bell Farm. Andrew fucking Jackson, our seventh president. The homie. The homie. Andrew Jackson was a personal friend of the forts and also knew John Jr. by name as he had volunteered to fight with Andrew Jackson against the Creeks and the British. By the late summer of 1820, the word of the Bell Witch had spread well beyond Middle Tennessee. General Jackson and six of his friends made their way to Red River to see about this witch. So, I mean, I don't know history very well. Is this before? Before at, he was president. Before he was president. Before, okay. at, so it was just general. Yeah. Uh, he became president, I think, 1828. Okay. This was 1820. Right. This was right before his, he started campaigning for the presidency. Oh. Right now he was just... A well-respected general. Right. Right? Oh, okay. So during this part of the manuscript, Richard, our narrator, makes it very clear that what's about to happen next was told to him by Lucy and Betsy. General Jackson, while in Nashville, had heard about the many tales happening at the, at the Bell Farm. 
and seeing that his close friends were in the middle of the whole thing, he decided to stop by and see what all the fuss was about. Plus, he was really excited at the possibility of meeting a real ghost. Some of the men he brought along, on the other hand, were skeptical and were thinking about hunting and fishing to fill their time while down in Red River. So about a mile before arriving to Red River, their wagon abruptly stopped. The wagon creaked and groaned from the stress of the four, ho- of the four horses pulling, and yet it did not move. So the general hopped off the wagon to see what was up with the wagon. They lifted each wheel off the ground and saw that they all turned. Tossing his hat into the wagon, he laughed and said, <laughs> What else can it be but the Bell's Witch? Suddenly, old Kate's voice, soft enough that only the general and one of the other men heard it. I'm glad you understand at last, general. Now you can go ahead. I shall speak with you again tonight. Immediately, the wagon became unstuck, and the other men who didn't hear old Kate scoffed and said that it was only the wind that the general had heard. The party shortly arrived at Red River, and after shaking hands and being cordial with practically all of Red River, they retreated to eat, where he was more than happy to tell stories of John Jr.'s heroism. Then, in turn, he was told of the witches' many antics. One of the general's men, who he had only introduced as the witch layer earlier, the general hired this man for this occasion as he was made known for his considerable talent at such things. So this witch layer started telling stories of his many accomplishments in defeating the supernatural. He pulled from his pocket the tail of a dead black cat that he claimed was the familiar of which he had killed. According to him, if he stroked the tail on his nose, it would take on an electric charge that he alone could see, and it would take on a bluish hue when the spirit would approach. Did you ever hear such brave words? I bet you that Paul here is a coward. If for no other reason, I wish his spirit would appear to show this man's true colors. And it seemed that's what old Kate was waiting for. Because almost immediately, the sounds of approaching footsteps were heard. At first, they were light, but quickly changed to the sound of a heavy man wearing boots. Uh-oh. General, I am here as I promise, and ready for business. And that business would be this bag of hot wind. With that tail up against your nose, your little puckered mouth looks like the cat's asshole. I thought I was supposed to warn you when I was near. I've been standing behind you for the past hour. Oh! The general was so shocked and dumbfounded that even he couldn't say a word. The witch lair just stood there with his mouth open, unable to respond. Well, at least shoot me for Christ's sakes. I'll make it easy for you and stand in front of you. The witch layer bragged earlier how the witch he killed was due to a silver bullet shot from a special gun. A special gun that he pulled out and showed everyone before pulling out the cat's tail. So those in the room quickly moved away from the man and out of his sights. With a shaking hand, he raised his pistol and pulled the trigger. The hammer fell, but nothing happened. Try again. Hurry up. Can't wait forever. Again, the pistol failed to fire. That was your turn. Now it's mine. Immediately, the witch lair was dragged up from his seat 
by his nose. Never mind stroking your nose with dead cats. I'll stroke it for you. Everyone present heard several sharp slaps and saw the man fall to the floor. Then he was forcefully hauled up by his nose. Both oh. nostrils flared as if fingers or claws were shoved inside them. <laughs> he walked on his tiptoes around the room, slapping at the ear in front of him and screaming that his nose was about to break. When suddenly the front door swung open and the great witch lair was let outside, squealing like a pig. Once he was released, he ran up in the direction of the main road, never to return. When suddenly, all those who went outside and followed Kate turned around to see General Jackson on one knee, laughing <laughs> so hysterically. <laughs> That was the most fun I've had in my life, and I am glad I said nothing against old Kate. I would rather fight the entire army single-handedly than face this witch. <laughs> I'm pleased to entertain you, General. I'll wager that this is the last that we'll see of that coward. But there is another in your company who is also a fraud. I will attend to him tomorrow night, as the hour is getting late. Look, if I was that fraud... I'll be all right. She's talking about me. I'll make my way out of this fucking area. Be like, General, it's me. I'm out. When the morning came, the general and his men were getting ready to go back home as the witch cannot top her display the night before from the night before. And by mid-morning, they were packed and on their way south. So Wait, they were you, gone. So the frauds were gone? Well, the... Or the, everyone. Everyone, everyone left, including, including General, including General. Jackson. So that was his his little cameo, and that was it. it. He just saw that witch. He just stopped by. He stopped by. Got a chuckle. Oh, I've seen enough. Cool. I'm out. He stand lead this I'm freaking episode with this and then bullshit. Pieces. General Jackson kept closed mouth about the whole thing. Maybe he believed the stories told about the witch being able to roam the earth, and didn't want to be the next to receive her wrath. But Richard, in the manuscript. He kind of implies how he thinks that General Jackson was the fraud. Oh. Yeah, like he was the non-believer in, like, like in the group. Just because the way he was acting. Like he doesn't, because um, remember, he says he all of this he heard. Like he, like he heard from Lucy and Betsy. Uh, in the book, he says he, he saw them from afar when they got here. And he was introduced to them, but he was still tending to his crops and everything he was doing. Right. Yeah. And yeah. they got there that night. They slept. And by the morning, they were gone. So he didn't get just hands to interact with them. But he like, but he's like, I had a feeling the the fraud was General Jackson. So despite all the new visitors and their diversions, old Kate continued its attack on John. Even though John was breaking down due to the incessant attacks by Kate, he wasn't the only one. Lucy, John's wife, and Betsy's mother was literally being worried to death. Old Kate had a real soft spot for Lucy. Oftentimes, many would find old Kate speaking softly to Lucy, asking her about her day and how she felt. John Jr. noticed this, and during one of his intellectual arguments with old Kate, he mentioned the toll her attacks on John, on John Sr. are taking on his mother. Old Kate restated her fondness for Lucy, but absolutely refused to let upon John. Until he was quote unquote dead and buried. 
<laughs> then nearing the end of September, Lucy fell sick with pleurisy. It's when the chest cavity like gets inflamed, causing sharp chest pains that worsens during breathing. While she was battling a high fever, making her cough making her coughs frightfully painful. They were saying that every time she coughed, it's like she well, she was split second from passing out from just the shock of pain that just came through her body. With no remedy given by Dr. Hobson during his visit, old Kate appointed herself Lucy's nurse and constant companion. But her newfound attention on Lucy was doing the opposite effect old Kate had intended as her presence alone was sapping Lucy's strength. And this is what Richard had to say about this in his manuscript. The spirit cannot seem to understand how its presence could be bad. What startled me was that this magical creature, who could be in two places at once, who had the strength to resist horses and men together, who astonished us with the new tricks of producing food from thin air, could offer neither medicine nor spell to cure this person she clearly liked. It got me reflecting that calling it a witch was the most ignorant of names. Witches dealt in spells and paid for this power with the forfeit of their immortal souls, surely in face. If she were a witch, she should have been able, with a charm or spell of magic words, to have made Betsy and Joshua not only fall out of love, but to become enemies, rather than plead first with me to break them up, and then with the lovers themselves. I realized that the being itself was a miracle, but was at the same time quite limited in its ability to create miracles. Poor Luce. Poor Luce. What can I do for you, Luce? Lucy took the attention away from John while she was sick, giving the older Belle a break from the constant verbal and physical attacks on the hands of old Kate. Sometimes Lucy was too tired to speak and would even lapse into complete silence to see if old Kate was nearby, which she always was. When someone came into the room and looked for medicine or another pillow, old Kate would immediately chime in with direction or advice. Often when Lucy had neither the strength or inclination to talk with old Kate, it would sing, and by Richard's admission, she had a lovely singing voice. It knew more songs and more diverse types of them than any living person that Richard knew. Lucy's favorite was Come My Heart, which it sang to her every day, never failing to fetch a tear from the listeners. No matter how much Lucy sang or how much she tried and keep her conversation, she kept getting sicker and sicker until she lacked the strength to eat. Which, as you could probably guess, added more pressure to John Bell, who couldn't sit in the bedroom with Lucy as old Kate wanted to stop screaming at John when he would enter to help. She never gave up on John, but right now she was preoccupied with Lucy. She said, Look, Lucy's dying, let me take care of her. But every time John would walk in, she would immediately, with all her voices, start talking shit like, You old fuck, you're gonna die. You're gonna... And old John's like, Oh fuck, I gotta get out, I gotta get out. And for my wife is dying. And for the majority of the time, while Lucy was sick, John was outside sitting by a door. 
asking anybody whenever they would come in and out how she was doing, what she wanted. Because he like, couldn't go in. Because he couldn't walk in. Damn. For weeks, many wives from around the Red River would cook and bake their famous dish to try and tempt Lucy to eat, but to no avail. And after a few weeks of this, old Kate got an idea. Lucy wasn't eating because they were bringing her what they loved to eat, and not what she loved the most, hazelnuts and grapes. That's it. So Kate made Lucy hold out her hands, and from the thin air... It rained a shower of hazelnuts. But after Lucy thanked her, she told old Kate that she was too weak to chew them. Old Kate said that wasn't a problem and made her hold out her hands once again. And with that, a second shower poured from the ceiling. And this time it was plump, individual grapes. Whether it was a sickness running its course, or the fact that the unselfish acts of old Kate comforted Lucy... From that point forward, Lucy began recovering and was back on her feet less than a week later. And as soon as it was clear that Lucy was going to survive, Jesse Bell and Bennett Porter moved out of Red River, which is their oldest daughter. While both Lucy and John were happy for them, after all, they went and bought new land in Mississippi. They felt someone abandoned and a bit betrayed during their hour of need. So when the children, the oldest ones, were like, oh, my mom's fine. She's cool. She, she looks like she's going to survive. I'm Peace out. out. Yeah, and they left. You good, mom? You good? All right, got to go. So October came, and now it was apparent that John Bell was the only Bell family member taking any type of abuse from old Kate. For John Bell, October meant that he was now 71, and his twitches and swellings had turned a year old, as the last 12 months had taken a frightful toll on John for he was now terribly gaunt and hollow-eyed. Damn. John depended on his son Richard, for he was now eight years old, but the last few years had matured him beyond his years. The entire month of October, old Kate focused her fury on old Jack, as if tiring of the hauntings, and determined to have it over with as soon as possible. Day and night, inside and outside, cursing with its vile tongues and all its voices, making fun of Jack's deterioration and predicting his death before Christmas. There were there scenes where he's just like going. He's just in his living room. He's going to the kitchen to get some water. And you're he gonna just, die. Your voice. You're gonna die, John. You're gonna die. You don't need that. <laughs> Smacks out of his hands. Fuck. On October 17th, John suffered his worst attack up to that point, and it was so severe that everyone thought he was gonna drop dead right then and there. After it passed, he stayed in bed for over a week to recover. All the while, old Kate was ranting and cursing from outside his room to deny him any rest. She was not relenting, bro. Did did he uh, describe this attack? Oh, that's right. Was, uh, yeah, it was just his worst attacks. Remember how there was a point where his face would shake yeah. and then like his jaws would move oh, and he had his swelling, his swelling would happen? Yeah. Well, this time it was just bad where he was just like sitting down his face was shaking and no one could do anything. He just plopped because he couldn't breathe because yeah. the tongue swelled. Oh, yeah. And they're like, well, like, what's going on? What's going on? And then after he recovered from his like little epileptic seizure, that's the way like the way he describes it. It makes it seem like a seizure because he would just like shake uncontrollably. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So after that, it just wore him out. He was 71 years old. Fuck. Then on October 28th, 
during a beautiful day, he felt good enough to go outside and tend to some light farm business. John was still not 100%, so he had to have Richard, his, his youngest son, to tie his shoes. Together, John and Richard left the house and started walking toward the hawk pens to see which ones were ready for the fall slaughter. About halfway to the pens, one of John's shoes came off his foot. Richard knew he had done a pretty good job tying his father's shoes, but fetched the shoe nonetheless, tied it, and this time, double knotted it to make sure. A few moments later, as they were walking, the other shoe came off. They both knew this was old Kate, but denied to give her the satisfaction of saying it out loud, and instead they kept walking until they reached the hogs. Richard was set to fetch one of the slave men, and by the time he came back, John had already determined which hogs were to be butchered. He gave the order, and the ones chosen were cold. On the way back home, John commented to Richard saying that he felt like one of those hogs, separated for his final fate. And just as Richard was about to respond, John fell hard on his ass. Richard stared in horror as both of John's feet were lifted and were up in the air. His shoes were being pulled off his feet and thrown in opposite directions. As Richard went to go fetch the shoes, John started crying out loud that his face was being struck. After returning with John's shoes, Richard helped him up, seeing his father's face was alive with twitching. He was afraid that his father was turning to a demon right before his very eyes. But John, noticing Richard, he spoke with a gentle voice and commanded Richard to help him put on his shoes. Trembling, Richard was trying his hardest to lace up John's shoes when from all directions, the poem coming through the rye was heard loudly as old Kate started singing. Just as the poem was about to end, she then launched she then launched into the chorus of another poem. As soon as she left, yelling an Indian war cry, John's fit passed. What a bitch! John, who was his family's and community's rock, a respected member of not only his church but a Red River, an intelligent businessman with a keen sense of leadership, broke down in front of his eight-year-old son and began to cry, passing his hands tenderly along Richard's face. Oh, my son, you have been so patient and kind to your father in his need, but you will soon be relieved of your burden, as I will of mine. I cannot much longer endure the persecutions of this unspeakable creature. My end is surely near. Richard tried to speak, but John only hugged him close to his chest and cried out to heaven, asking if it was possible that God could relieve him of his torment, or at least grant him strength to keep fighting. John felt extremely tired and went straight to his bed as soon as he and Richard made it home. He was able to drink and eat for a while and was talking about needing rest, as tomorrow he had other things to tend to. But this was not to be as John never again stepped outside. Old K kept visiting John and kept up her threats of death. John offered no fight. He had given up. There was nothing that Lucy, John Jr., or any other of his children could do to make him regain his will to live. On December 12th, Old Kate predicted that John would never see the next son. The family was in a panic, but were relieved when the sun rose and John was still with them. That night, 
Old Kate laughed hysterically over her latest lie. Yes, I lied. But this is God's truth. When the new year turns, so will John Bell. In his grave. December 19th came and it was a chilly day. As the eldest, John for years had generally had generally been the last of his family to go to bed and be the first to rise. This morning, however, Lucia woke John being sound asleep. So she let him sleep in and she began to make breakfast. Everyone ate and then the children went out to do their morning chores. It was after the children left that Lucy went to see if John wanted or if he had the strength to leave the bed. Not once did it cross Lucy's mind that whole morning if John really was sound asleep. John was not responding to Lucy's calls. She put her hand to his neck and had trouble locating John's weak pulse. Lucy got the attention of John Jr. with her pleas for help and he rushed to the table in the corner of the room where they all kept John's medicines. John was surprised to find a semi-transparent bottle filled about a quarter with black liquid. No one wanted to leave John alone, especially his children, so Richard volunteered to go fetch Dr. Hobson. When they returned, they entered John Bell's home. Frank Miles, John Johnston, and the Reverend Gunn were there as well. Frank being Frank, he stormed into the room, grabbed John by his shoulders, and shaking and shouting at him to get up. <laughs> Just stand up, John. They all rushed at the Frank when old Kate spoke up and told Frank that it was no use. That she got old Jack. And that he was a goner for sure. John Jr. asked the witch if that black bottle had anything to do with his father's condition. Old Kate confirmed his suspicions and said that she had bought in a vial of poison during the night and gave it to John Bell, who had taken more than enough to kill him. She gave out a harsh laugh. And vanished. John Jr. suggested that they test the contents of the bottle and find out for themselves if it was indeed poison. Reverend Gunn ran out of the barn and grabbed one of the many stray cats that littered the Bell Farm. That's fucked up. John Johnston then picked up a piece of straw from the Bell's broom, dipped it into the bottle, and made the cat swallow the drips of poison. Soon after, the cat began running around the room and a few seconds later fell over. It never moved from where it fell, and it died shortly after it had been poisoned. Wow. You're right. He's dead. Dr. Hobson confirmed that John had slipped into a coma and was in bad shape. He also detected an odor on John's lips and confirmed he had indeed drank the poison as he sniffed the contents of the vial, confirming they were one and the same. Frank took the bottle and marched into the dining room fireplace. Richard chased after him, but it was too late, as he was already tossing the remaining liquid into the flames. Dr. Hobson said he didn't have anything that could revive John. He felt that even if he tried to drain away any poison in him, that he was just too sick and would just die from that alone. He told them the only thing they could do was pray for old John. The day passed slowly and sadly, John never moved. 
More friends came to the house, and they all took turns on the death watch throughout the night. Old Kate, too, would make her appearance here and there, asking each time if he was dead yet. <laughs> that is fucked up. Then, in the early morning of December 20th, John Bell took his last breath. Old Kate disappeared all, all through the time John was laid out in his bed and during his wake. The funeral took place at the Bell's home. Reverend Shug and Reverend James took turns performing the service for their old friend. Over 50 people crowded into the house, fully expecting old Kate to appear and dishonor the proceedings. She was nowhere to be found. Richard volunteered to dig John Bell's final resting place. The pallbearers were Jesse, John Jr., Drury, John Johnston, Frank Miles, and Bennett Porter. As the last shovel of dirt was thrown, old Kate made her appearance, singing celebratory songs in a drunken voice. They did their best to ignore her, but she followed them back to the house and even continued to sing from outside. <laughs> what a bitch. That night, they had a very deep and heavy snow. Old Kate quietly made her way into the bell house with everyone ignoring to speak to her. Everyone except John Jr. If he truly did have a justification why he deserved death, why not say it now so that we will no longer love and adore him? Do you not know that the dead are much more beloved than the living, that they can no longer disappoint or inconvenience those who love them? Why are you berating me? I just made it easier for you to love your father even more. But he can no longer love us. You are the cause of his leaving this earth before his time. He can still love you, and does. He looks down on all of you from heaven. I could conjure up his spirit, and then imitate his voice in order to convince you of this. But I do not wish to deceive any of you anymore. I would see right through your games. You think I cannot fool you if I wanted? Go over to the window. See how pristine the snow is? Watch. As John looked, footprints advanced from the distance right up to the window. Now, take your father's boots, which are still inside the chest on the porch, and go out to the tracks with them. I will do nothing for you. You already know what to find. The boots would precisely fit into the tracks. If I had wanted to, I could convince you of a ghostly visit by your father. I could have made you believe. I could have had his voice confess to horrible sins. But this was not my purpose. I will soon be bid this house goodbye. And when I do, I will not be heard of again for a great long while. Do not worry. When you hear a scratching on the roof, it will be a tree branch in the wind or gnawing on the bedpost. This time, it will be a mouse. When I have gone, I have gone. Despite old Kate's promise to leave the Bell family, Betsy was overcome by terrible dreams. She would tell her mother that she was worried that now that her father was dead, that old Kate would again concentrate its fury on her and haunt her to her death. Old Kate was aware of this conversation and soon afterward, visited Betsy while she was in Lucy's presence, speaking in a gentle voice. It said she had no animosity towards her, and to prove this, 
she would be gone for a whole week. It kept to its promise, and each day Betsy became more and more of her old self, to the point that she again learned to smile and was even caught humming some of the old tunes that old Kate had sung to Lucy. Betsy was now three years older, three years since old Kate first visited. So at this point, Richard had lost most of his students to age, Betsy included. And because he was busy with the Bell's family and their haunting, he didn't really have time to actively promote himself to the families of the younger children. And because of this, he decided to leave Red River and go teach in a larger community, such as Springfield. Plus, the thought of him staying at Red River to teach for such a small amount of students and watch Betsy marry Joshua Gardner, because after all, the reason that they didn't wed the first time was because of the witch. But now with the witch gone, there would be no reason to not marry. And he did leave in the middle of January of 1821. He established himself in a small house in Springfield and quickly went to work on both his teachings and his political career. This was to force himself to not think about Betsy and to better himself. And while he did flourish in both his scholarly and political career, he still couldn't get Betsy out of his mind. From time to time, he would receive reports on Red River, which was only a few hours away by horse. And from these reports, he was hearing that the witch was becoming weaker and weaker and visiting less and less frequently, as most believed that Kate Bat's purpose in calling up the demon had been fulfilled. Stories went out that the spirit completely changed its nature toward Betsy and treated her with a special tenderness. It would often advise Betsy to take great care of yourself, a noble girl. Spring of 1821 came, and with it came the free time that Richard needed to campaign for a civil position in Springfield. Richard knew that if he wanted to win, he needed to have to encourage every man he'd ever met to vote for him, and that included traveling back to Red River, which he did. On the Saturday before Easter, he went on a campaigning tour and reached Red River that Monday. After arriving in Red River, he found out that Joshua Gardner had formally proposed to Betsy the day before his arrival, and she accepted. Damn. He was informed that most of the community would be down by the Red River. Soon after arriving down at the river, he found Betsy among her closest friends at the very spring where the witch made Johnston, Drury, and Bennett dig for treasure. <laughs> when he was spotted, a general cheer went up and he was crowded almost immediately. After shaking hands and catching up with old friends, he was assured that every man old enough to vote, even before his visit, was determined to vote in his favor. Betsy was then called forward through the crowd to show Richard a ring. After congratulating her, Richard walked around and when he saw an opportunity to draw Betsy to the side, he took it. Richard finally revealed how he felt about her and how sorry he was that he had to do it after she had accepted Joshua's hand in marriage. After a back and forth consisting of why he didn't tell her how he felt about her and her saying that there was no way she could tell Joshua that she was changing her mind, that it wouldn't be fair to him. Richard was gutted. He took her left hand and lightly kissed it and asked if the nuptial day had been set and she said it wasn't but asked if he would come once they chose the day. He agreed and just then Joshua appeared. Richard handed Betsy and climbed back on his horse, waved at everyone he passed and put on a brave smile as he made his way out of Red River. Dang. 
keyword, a brave smile. Yeah, that's the that way. That dude was hurt. He, he was, was hurt. hurt. He was hurt. He was gutted. The servants of many of the families claimed their fishing spots upstream from where everyone else was situated. Uncle Zeke, the patriarch of Thomas's gun slaves, came down from the bank and claimed that the Indian spirit was here. Zeke had clinged to the witch's first lie from part one, where she made them believe that she was a Native American. Frank Miles cursed Zeke out. He accused him of being an ignorant old savage. Come on, Frank. Frank's fucking up. Like Frank, when isn't he fucking up? So Zeke had just turned around to, to go back upstream when one of Joshua's gardener's lines was seized by a monstrous fish. As Josh struggled to get his line untangled, Zeke said that this was the physical manifestation of the witch. Despite her distance from everyone, Betsy heard the loudness of everyone down at the bank talking about the witch. Josh, sensitive to her mood, climbed up to her and attempted to comfort her when she revealed that she had a sense something was about to happen. Suddenly, a cool breeze blew towards the river from the direction of the Bell Farm. A curious hush came over everyone. Please, Betsy, don't have Joshua Gardner. The familiar tones of the witch came over the water, and those who had not stopped talking fell silent, and everyone turned as one body and looked directly at Betsy. Oh, it was like, ah! Please, Betsy, don't have Joshua Gardner. Betsy's mouth dropped open. She clapped her hands, she clasped her hands over her mouth and stared at Joshua. Please, Betsy Bell, don't have Joshua Gardner. The hours following Old Kate's reemergence, a few suspected that it was Richard hiding among the trees. <laughs> Richard's in the background. Please, don't do it. But it was later proven that he had already reached the following city by that time. So they actually thought it was Richard. Some of them were like, Dude, this, this, this hating ass bitch. But it wasn't Richard. Nah, nah, look, Richard, he stormed out with a brave smile, dude. He accepted it. That's a true man. He took the L. He took the L. Please. 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 Don't do it. He starts crying. I miss you. And I love you. I know you're done. My bad. Carry on. Betsy, Betsy jumped up and ran back to the bell farm with Joshua following suit. It was at that exact same place and the exact same time that she told him again she could not go forward with the wedding. The witch's prolonged silence had given Betsy the hope of living a normal life and a chance of marrying Joshua. But having her reappear assured her that any chance of normalcy was out of the question and the witch's re- reappearance for the sole purpose of deploring the union proved it was never going to be far away. It was clear to Betsy that the being had come to Red River for two reasons. One, to kill her father. And two, to see that she never marry Joshua Gardner. Damn. Out loud, Betsy swore on the sacred memory of her father that she would never marry Joshua Gardner. Later that evening, when Betsy was alone, the witch's voice appeared to her that at last it was content. 
it promised her that it would soon bother the Bell family no more. So within the span of a few weeks, Joshua settled any business he had at Red River and moved west, never to bother Betsy again. Damn, my man. But in the following months of their separation, a number of weddings had occurred, but due to the pressure of Richard's new business in Springfield and using every spare moment to campaign, he had no time to visit any of the weddings until after the election, which he had won. Nice. His curiosity got the better of Richard, and in early December, he decided to visit Red River. He found the Bell family in fine health, and although they were prospering with the farm, they were all still mourning the loss of John Bell, as the anniversary of John's death was nearing. According to Richard, Betsy was just as beautiful, but she was not back to her old self. It's as if the witch had stolen that playful, spunky spark that made Betsy, Betsy. They made Richard aware of the spirit's final visit, which had occurred not long after Betsy's promise to not wed Joshua. You are alas free of me. I am going now. Goodbye to you all. With that, the ball burst the smoke and filtered back up the chimney. And true to its word, it has not appeared to the bell since. <gasps> Say what? What? That's it? During this whole visit, Richard couldn't keep his old ass eyes off of 16-year-old Betsy. But lacking the courage to ask Betsy outright if she was ready to start seeing people, he instead opted speaking to Lucy when he found her alone for a brief moment. Lucy told Richard that Betsy is not considering suitors and that entertaining any bachelors was the last thing on her mind. But she did express pleasure that Richard was still interested in Betsy. Richard then asked Lucy for a favor. If she could please write to him when Betsy was indeed ready. Finally, in 1823, in early June, came a long-expected letter from Lucy Bell speaking on Betsy that gave Richard the courage to continue his pursuit of her. While waiting for this opportunity, Richard didn't just sit idly by. He held the post in the state legislature and was, a prominent, and was prominent on several committees. At the same time, he had used his increasing connections to build a modest fortune. For when Betsy was ready to be courted, he wanted to court her as an accomplished man, which he was. So on June 15, Richard took himself to Red River Baptist Church with his horse and rig, and after Mass was invited to the Bell House for dinner. Following the meal, Richard and Betsy went for a walk, with Richard holding Betsy's hand. Have you something to ask me, Mr. Powell? <laughs> wow! Oh, shit, yeah, um, I would like to court you. Is that all? Seeing as you already have my hand. Well, it is marriage that I desire. If you would consider my proposal, I am willing to wait a few more years. Or if you are ready now, I am prepared to marry you today. Richard is with the shit. He's like, yo, I'm willing to wait. You ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. You are truly, you truly are a politician, Mr. Powell. Shall we be engaged this day and set the wedding? A year from now, so that I may be sure my mother and brothers are properly cared for. Look, man, I'm just saying, she sound like that. I am not <laughs> marrying her. What's wrong with you? 
They were met with loud well wishes when they made their announcement after returning to the bell house after the walk. The year flew by and next thing Witcher knew, he was getting married at Red River Baptist Church. Old Kate hadn't made her appearance in over a year and no one spoke of it during the celebration. But Richard was sure that everyone, including himself, were relieved when the wedding of his dreams went off without a hitch. So 12 years have passed since Betsy moved to Springfield with Richard into a house that he had built according to her wishes. She made herself very active in the social, religious, and philanthropic life of her new home, being the model politician's wife. Each year that passed was a good year for Richard and Betsy, outside of the thoughtless person stopping her once in a blue moon to ask about the Bell Witch haunting. Their lives were picture perfect. When suddenly it wasn't. Oh shit! Oh, sight, motherfucker. Five months before Richard sat down to write this manuscript, his life changed forever. Their daughter had turned twelve, reaching the age Betsy had been when the Bell family hunting started. One night, Richard couldn't sleep. Betsy was asleep, but she was a light sleeper, so as to not disturb her. He decided to try and fall asleep in their guest bedroom. Just as soon as he had closed the door to his bedroom, he heard the noise of what sounded like a rock being thrown against the roof. Richard rushed to the staircase window and although the moon was bright, he saw nothing out of the ordinary. Suddenly, he heard the clear noise of a hard object landing on the roof. Richard returned to his bedroom to see that Betsy hadn't been, hadn't been awakened by the noise. She was tossing fitfully. Her eyes were closed but seemed to be squeezing hard shut. So Richard decided to tough it out and sleep in his bed as he did not want Betsy to be awakened by those familiar noises and find herself alone. The next night, the same work problems had him tossing and turning in bed and once again, he decided to go and try and sleep in the guest room as to not awake Betsy and no sooner had he closed the room to his door that he heard the sound of stones being dropped on the roof. Again, he ran to the window, and as soon as he arrived, the window frame shook, but again, he saw nothing. A moment later, he heard cats fighting in the backyard, and rumblings of an approaching thunder. Noises he was all too familiar with. Oh shit. With his heart beating wildly, he made his way down to the stairs and out of the back door. The sky was cloudless, no cats in sight, while the full moon shined brightly. Son of a bitch. He returned back to his bedroom to see Betsy asleep while having a slight fit. When he lay down, the noises didn't immediately stop like the night before. The cats and the rumble of thunder stopped, but the sound of a large animal pacing back and forth along the length of the roof continued until around 2 o'clock. At first, Richard thought exactly as John Bell, that this was obviously a prank on them. And it made sense. There were now... Literally hundreds of people in Springfield that knew of the Bell Witch haunting. And also because of Richard's political career, 
he had made more enemies than John could possibly could have. His second thought was that the spirit had finally returned. If this was the case, then the object of the spirit was none other than himself, since it was his rising in the middle of the night that had set off the noises on both occasions. Richard wondered why he had not started speaking, but thought that maybe after being away for so long, it had to be born again. But unlike the entire Bell family when the hauntings began, Richard was not about to sit by and become its helpless victim until it grew to full power. During the entire time of the Bell Farm hauntings, he had a theory that Betsy might have held more of the truth of the spirit's origin and, and purpose that she had led us to believe, which is why the creature had punished her. And several times, Richard caught a look in Betsy's eyes that seemed to say that she felt she deserved the spirit's attack. But Richard didn't want to say anything about this theory of his as he didn't want to offend anyone during the family's turbulent moments. Richard hypothesized that the secrets Betsy knew might only be known to her inner mind, the part that only comes alive when one sleeps, her subconscious. His main reason for this was the fact that Betsy only had strange fits while the spirit was growing, and the fact that it had never spoke while she was unconscious. Richard's suspicion was that it had invaded her body, drew physical strength from her, and at the same time searched her mind for knowledge of the area, its history, and its inhabitants. But a year before all this, Richard had read one of Benjamin Franklin's more remarkable adventures while serving as the United States ambassador to the French court. Dr. Franklin was given the Royal Academy of Sciences highest honor for his recommendations that lightning rods should be placed on all tall structures, saving countless lives. The King of France had sent him a personal thanks, and while Franklin was still in France, the King invited him to be a part of an academic investigation of a Dr. Mesmer. France Adam Mesmer was born in Austria and had received his medical degree in Vienna. But he was not content with just studying science and the truth it may reveal. Mesmer came to believe in an invisible healing power that radiated from his hands that he called animal magnetism. And for this, he was branded a sorcerer and was banished from Austria. He moved to Paris where he found many patients who embraced him and his theories. So the Paris communities of scientists and physicians were determined to make him prove this quote-unquote animal magnetism. So the French government appointed a commission to investigate Mesmer's claim, with Franklin joining the commission at the king's request. Under the demonstration of a French doctor, uh, in which Mesmer couldn't actually do this himself in Paris as he could not obtain a license to practice medicine, Mesmer taught this man to move an iron wand back and forth before a patient, speaking in a soft, often repeated words as to the healing effects the patient could expect. Dr. Franklin and the rest of the commission described the healings as only an appear to successful minds, meaning only gullible people. So realizing the damage being caused to his reputation, Mesmer retired to a private life in Switzerland. So, so while reading into the story, Richard also learned that Mesmer had left behind two fanatical disciples, and these two gentlemen discovered that the slow, periodic waving of an object, such as a shiny wand, a pocket watch, or a golden locket in front of the eyes 
put many people, patients or not, into a kind of waking sleep. While in the sleep, the people could reply to questions that they would normally wouldn't have answered without remembering a thing. So you get mesmerized. So Richard, hopeful and curious, approached a handful of his friends in Nashville with his news and proposed that they should see and experiment if this actually works. Richard and most of the other men were not susceptible, but one of the friends was able to get what the report called mesmerized. He answered questions and performed acts that he normally wouldn't. Richard left Nashville and rushed to Springfield with a plan. He approached Betsy with what he called a new parlor trick, imported from Paris. And Betsy, being the social butterfly that she was, she became a willing subject for his swinging watch. Richard's friend, the one who did get mesmerized, did so only after a long while of trying. Betsy, on the other hand, her eyes began to lower before the first minute was over. What was strange was that Betsy was in a far deeper sleep than Richard's friend. Hoping his experiment would work, Richard rushed and grabbed a pen, ink, and paper to write down her answers. Richard, not knowing much about mesmerism, he decided to ease into it and asked very easy questions before moving forward with the tougher ones. Have you lately heard strange noises around the house at night? Yes. What kind of noises have you heard? Rocks. Rocks do not make noises, Betsy. Rocks against the roof and walls. Have you heard other noises as well? Animals. Animals such as cats and dogs? Yes. What were they doing? Fighting. And walking back and forth on the roof? Yes. Were these real animals? No. Who made these noises? The witch. The same witch that haunted the bell farm? Yes. Is it in this room? Yes. Can you see it? No. Then how do you know it's in this room? I feel her. Where is it, Betsy? With me. Inside of you? Yes. Can you make it come out and speak with me? No. Can it speak if it wants to? I don't know. Why has the witch returned after all these years? To protect Missy. Richard was gutted. <gasps> he was shocked and torn to hear his daughter's name come out of Betsy. It took a few moments for Richard to collect himself before he continued. Why does Missy need protecting? She is pretty. She is 12. But is she not quite safe here in Springfield and in our home? No, she is not safe from her father. Richard described after hearing this as if he was struck in between the eyes, confused as to why the witch thought he was in danger to her. But he knew that Betsy's answers must have, must have had another meaning 
while Richard was in shock as to what he had just heard. Suddenly, old facts and details rushed Richard from the Bell hauntings. John Bell had been considerably older than Lucy when he married her, just like Richard and Betsy. Betsy was 12 years old when the witch first appeared, the same age Missy is now. Did the witch come to Red River to protect you, Betsy? Yes. Did it protect you by making noises? Yes. To frighten your father away from your room at night? Yes. Did it protect you the first time your father came to visit? Betsy opened her mouth, about to answer, her lips and her jaws freezing, still struggling to reply, answering only with two tears from her eyes. At this point in the manuscript, Richard warns Missy, the intended reader of this manuscript. The next passage provides vital details to the story. Nevertheless, prepare yourself for brutalities that no proper woman should ever be required to read. Keep in mind, however, that your poor mother lived through this. Richard again repeated his questions. Did it protect you the first time your father came to visit? The voices that answered from the opposite side of the room he had not heard in a long time. It was old Kate. All of old Kate answering Richard. So you have finally guessed our secret? I have guessed that John Bell stole into Betsy's room on several occasions. He always went to bed after all the others, and so it was no great matter that he would be awake near midnight. He came into her bedroom and slowly pulled the bed covers off of poor Betsy's beautiful body. Is that where you got the idea to pull everyone's bed clothes away? We did it to mock John Bell. To let him know that we had watched what he did. That we had witnessed his unspeakable sin. But you did not protect Betsy the first time he visited. No. He had his filthy way with poor Betsy. He moved his hands up and down her sides so slyly. Can you bear to hear this about your wife, Dick Powell? Or should we go away? I can bear anything as long as it's the truth. This is the truth, at last. Poor Betsy was awakened by his touch. It was black as sin in her room, so she could not see who was taking advantage of her. She opened her mouth to scream. He clapped his big hard hand over her mouth and stopped up the sound. At the same time, he whispered to her who he was and that she had no reason for fear. She relaxed. Shall we go on? Yes. Old Jack Bell told poor Betsy that she was his beloved daughter and that he would never hurt her. All he wished to do was make her feel good, to feel pleasures she had never felt before. Poor Betsy held still while he put his cracked old lips upon her soft ruby ones. He was her father. But even she knew, at that tender age, that such kisses were reserved for lovers, 
She attempted to squirm away, but he pinned her down with his weight. Then his hands began to lift her nightdress. Poor Betsy opened her mouth again to scream. This time, old Jack's one hand went up to her lips, and the other went around her throat. He clamped hard. So hard that poor Betsy could not get her breath. She just thrashed and kicked. Just as she did every night with her fits, she was relieving her terror right before her guilty father's eyes. Then old John got very angry. He hissed to poor Betsy that his visit was all her fault. Surely he was not to blame that she had grown to such a beauty, beyond his endurance to resist her. Her charms were unnatural. The very devil had given them to her to tempt him, and it was his duty as her father to fuck the devil out of her. Is that what she said? John Bell raped Betsy. And this is what he said? Damn. He did say those very words? Yes. And he threatened poor Betsy never to speak to anyone of it. For if she did, as she was believed, he would be forced to leave the farm, to leave Tennessee. Lucy would die of shame. Richard and Joel would be orphans. The family would be destroyed because of her selfishness. That son of a bitch. You are the flesh of my flesh. The blood of my blood. I am your father. And I can do with you what I please. And how long was it before you came to save Betsy? The fourth time. John Bell raped his daughter four times? No. Twice. On his third visit, he was frightened away by a noise of rocks being thrown against the house. You're doing? No. We think it was old Kate Bat's little slave boys, just as Jack had suspected at first. But whoever it was, they scared old Jack. And he rushed out of poor Betsy's room with his cock waving in the air. And the fourth time? That time we made the noise. The fourth, the fifth, and sixth times. Then old Jack gave up and never came back. But it was too late for poor Betsy. And that made it too late for old John. Damn. The room then shook and reverberated with the revival of all the noises the spirit had ever made. Perhaps this was the spirit's version of a hurtful, frustrated scream. While Richard listened to the spirit's raucous display, he began to realize that he had finally unlocked the key to the Bell Witch haunting. Betsy was in the truest sense of the word, the spirit's mother. It was born of the sinful union between father and daughter, but not of flesh. It came from Betsy's desperate need for protection. Several of those present at the Bell Farm during the haunting were correct when they guessed that the demon had gone through a birth. 
and then at an adolescent period before it could talk. As with the real child, once it is born, this supernatural creation was of the mother, but not the mother. It could roam the world as a free and independent spirit. And yet, its permanent home was inside Elizabeth Bell Powell. Richard's beloved wife contained all at once a trinity, who she was awake, who she was unconsciously, and the spirit born of her mind, which had become the Bell Witch. Again and again, one epiphany after another came to Richard in a nerve-wracking rush. Lucy Bell admitted to being a very sound sleeper, thus giving John Bell ample time to sneak off to poor Betsy's room. The spirit was as high-spirited and playful as, as was Betsy before her father's wrath. It was as witty and clear of memory. He couldn't answer Richard's questions in Latin or Greek because Betsy didn't know Latin or Greek. At the trial brought on by Kate Batts, John was more concerned about being found innocent to preserve his standing in the eyes of his community rather than paying Kate back money. The appearance of being a paragon among his community obsessed him. He was being crushed by the impending trial and the excommunication of his church when he first visited Betsy's room. Perhaps it was the threat of a double public disgrace that pushed him over the edge. But as to why the spirit called itself Kate Bat's Witch, Richard too had an answer. Richard personally witnessed the effect old Kate had on poor Betsy during that interaction between her and her father when she cursed the family. Old Kate sealed her fate in the community when she declared that John, among the other bells, would suffer from her curse. Richard also believed this announcement, and also because Betsy was young, believed Kate as being responsible for the witch. Also because of Betsy's still childish mind, she believed to a certain degree her father's words that she held partial blame for the rape she had endured under her father. Richard also realized that the witch had been telling them the truth the whole time about who she was. I am the spirit of someone who has been happy and who has been disturbed. Hearing the word spirit, everyone naturally thought of the ghost of someone being dead. But it was Elizabeth Bell who had been happy until her father visited her on those dark winter nights. Fuck. People correctly observed that the witch was most often around Betsy and followed her when she fled to the homes of others. Elizabeth was and remains the spirit's home, but they were incorrect that she had maliciously created the witch. Once it was born, it had total independence from her, to the extent that it could not only fly from her to a great distance, but also fly to two places at the same time. Also, one can plainly understand how the creature's attacks on Betsy were in one sense desired, as it gave her an excuse to always keep her mother, sister, or friend beside her at all times, as a guarantee that her father could never again pay her a midnight visit. So this whole time, this old Kate was doing everything to protect Betsy. So by smacking her silly every night, someone else had to be there to keep an eye on her. And if someone was there, it was impossible for for John Bell to come in and rape her. Yeah. Wow. 
Once Richard had unlocked Betsy's mind to mesmerism, he asked himself again and again how everyone in Red River could have missed the numerous clues regarding John Bell and Betsy. How much clearer could have been the fact that, as Betsy's fits became stronger and stronger, so did the swelling of John's tongue and the twitching of his facial muscles. But that once her father was afflicted with his physical torments on a daily basis, that Betsy's fits gradually went away. What would be a natural consequence of a man torn between hiding his most heinous crime and at the same time, bound by all his religious beliefs to confess and lay his burden upon the Lord? A tongue that simultaneously concealed his sin and punished him to the point of death by preventing him from taking any sustenance. Was this not what John Bell meant by sins only known to God when he visited Richard that early morning? Did Dr. Homstead not tell them again and again that John had no physical causes for his sufferings and that the swellings and twitchings were from an illness of his mind? Richard couldn't believe that everyone could have been so stupid to not see the truth, but he wanted to believe that everyone was seeing John how he wanted them to see that their love for John prevented them to see what their eyes saw and their ears heard, which is why the spirit felt such compassion towards Lucy. The spirit had sympathy for the cheated wife. But there always remained much mystery of the haunting of this, as the spirit would only answer so much. Was it nightshade in the bottle? Yes. And how did the liquid get inside John? We made Betsy pick the berries. We made her press the berries very carefully so as not to stain her hands. We made her pour the liquid into the bottle and made her pour the liquid down her father's lips while he slept. But she too was asleep while all this happened. She remembers none of it. She is innocent. If she is so innocent and poor, then why did you pull her hair, slap her face, and embarrass her? She should have spoken out. She should have told her mother and her ministers. But as John said, that would have destroyed her family. Truth carries its price. She held back the truth. And so she was punished for it. And what about Joshua Gardner? What about Joshua Gardner? Why did you forbid Betsy to marry him? Because she would have always been unhappy. I did not forbid her until I was sure it was you she truly loved. She was attracted to you since the day you moved into Red River, but like you, she feared the great differences in your age. And then, once Jack got through with her, she feared the physical attentions of an older man. But I kept everyone else away from her, until the difference of age was not so great, and until you could prove to her that you are a gentleman. I said many times that I loved Betsy, and this was my proof. That is why you try to force me to come between them and help break their engagement? Even with a push, you remained the timid mouse. When you rolled up to the picnic on the Red River, I expected you at last to become a man for your own behalf. I was. I did. Maybe not as eloquent as I should have been, but at least I did plead my case. But Betsy could not embarrass Josh, and I was forced to seize my arguments. And I was forced to plead my own case and save her for you. Do you expect me to thank you for your kindness? 
And why, why not? not? You better. Because you made my wife a murderess. Why did you not simply speak out on behalf if she refused to? Why did you not let the court condemn John Bell as they had in their affair with Kate Batts? Never! Old John committed his sins in silence. He had ample chance to confess after I appeared. But he did not. Confession was his job. Mine was retribution. And I took it with leisure. I used that dim-witted Frank Miles to prove to old Jack that he couldn't fly away from me, so that he was forced to stay at the scene of his crime until he died. I let him keep up the sham of his faith. I let him go on deceiving all the friends who staunchly defended him. I let him taste hell on earth, to torment him in life before I finally let him go to the hell of death. Do you think I'm a monster for this? I cannot judge you. You are not of flesh and beyond my ability to grasp. That is wise. Do not waste your time in judging me. I wish to say nothing else to you. Ask me one more question, and then let me go. And if I do not care to let you go... Suddenly Richard's body felt as if a hundred pans were being stuck into Richard's chest, neck, and face. He jumped up from the chair with every muscle burning. The spirit laughed in all its voices. One last question. How can I convince Betsy that my daughter is safe? Caring Richard, you always ask the right questions. I'm proud of the love that you have of your daughter. And the safety of hers is of the utmost concern to you that you'd rather ask regarding her safety than furthering your career. While she sleeps, you cannot leave. Stay in your bedroom, close by her side. Do not go out of your bedroom. Use the chamber pot. Give her no cause to summon us from her sleep. We wish you peace. Our work is done. Now let us go. But what if my daughter is courted by a young man, not of Betsy's liking? Would she not summon you then? Let us go. Very well. Go. Sleep in peace and never return. The room became very silent. He woke Betsy from her hypnotized state, and she could not remember anything after she fell asleep. Richard did what the spirit advised. He never left the bedroom at night and has never reappeared. But the shock of what he had learned that night gave Richard a stroke a few nights later, prompting Richard to write this manuscript in hopes of it being useful in case the old witch returns. And Richard ends the manuscript with the following. I want to talk about it, but we're not done. Not yet. Let us go. Let us go. Let us go. <clears throat> God damn, fuck John.
I thank God that he did not enfeeble my pen hand, and that he gave me the many months necessary to set all this down. While our riches have dwindled, he has also been kind enough to grant me the extra years to see you blossom into womanhood. You are wise beyond years. Armed with the knowledge in this recounting, I am confident that you and your mother will be safe from the Bell Witch when I am gone. If you have chosen to read this out of curiosity and the spirit has not returned, do not share this with anyone. This would surely kill your mother long before the possibility that she might be judged by the law to account for the murder of her father. Once your mother is reunited with me in heaven, the choice of what to do with this is yours. Perhaps you, like the rest of the Bell family, will not want to shoulder the burden of this fearsome tale. I hope, however, that you will have the courage to see that it is made public. There is much that can and should be learned here. Your loving father. And that is the end of the Bell Witch Saga. Fucking plot twist, huh? <laughs> I didn't expect that one bit, dude. Not uh, every every episode was a plot twist. You think every episode was a plot so, twist? Like, the first one was... Well, I mean, not the first one. The first, the first one was two were like, just cliffhangers. Yeah, yeah. The first one was cliffhanger. The, the second one was a plot twist. What was the plot twist? Well, that the witch kept on changing its story of who it was. Oh, I just... Yeah. It's like, I'm this. No, I'm this. On this, I feel bad because I was rooting for John. I was like, somehow he's gonna live through this. And then when I heard when we read that he died, I was like, wow, that's it for John. That I was rooting, dude. That I started rooting for the witch on the second episode. I wasn't. Why, you you evil bastard? Yeah, started rooting for the witch in the second episode, mostly because I was a fan of a witch. he, He he finally stopped. Being the shit out of Betsy, I was like, finally, someone else takes a fucking beating. That's not her. Well, not now that you understand why she was taking the beating. Yeah, she should have confessed. Yeah, and yeah, that was her punishment for that same thing. That's crazy, dude. Leading up to you'd the be damned if you did, you'd be damned if you didn't. Leading up to this final episode, leading up to episode two. Yeah, no, I mean uh, up to this episode, up to this episode, chapter three, chapter three, part three. I thought. For whatever, I thought that John was going to pull through and live, and Betsy or Lucy were the ones who were going to die. And yeah. John, that's what I thought. I 
never in a million years thought. I knew John was going to die. But after he died, I was thinking like, oh, shit. He's dead now. Who is freaking Kate Bat's witch going to torment now? You know? But isn't it kind of like, for the lack of a better word, poetic? Yeah, the ending. Well, not the, the ending, but the things that the Bell Witch was doing, it was she was physically harming Betsy and doing everything, but it was to torture fucking John. Yeah. To yeah. make John never forget. <clears throat> everything she was doing was for John. To John yeah. be just basically telling John, fuck you. And one of the things that got to me was when she made it, there was a section where um she explains why she chose to make his tongue, why she chose to enlarge his tongue. One of the reasons was because he's a man of faith. I did not want him to get the easy way out, go to church, go to a priest, repent, and have the have the priest be like, okay, do this, and you are forgiven. Uh-huh. He's like, no. She was like, no. Fuck that. Can't speak. You are going to pay for this, and you are not going to get it you, out. And you, you are not going to get out of this the easy way. Oh, my Fuck. Yeah. Going to hell. And then to remind him of his doing by pulling the sheets. The sheets. That was. At first I was like, damn, she's dope. just being a fucking prick. And yeah, I thought she was being a prick. Yeah, now it's like, wow, that's that's to remind him of what he did. And her fits when she was just shaking whatever, that's what she did when he was raping her. That's oh, when, yeah, when she was kicking and she. Oh, Some Edgar oh, Allan Poe shit here. Oh, jeez. So what do you guys think? I like it. Yeah, story of the Bell Witch. It was a very lighthearted ending. I was like, okay, cool. Lighthearted? Dude, we find out Betsy was raped. No, I mean, like, it it brought everything to... Oh, like, it closed neatly? Yeah. Yeah. It gave us an ending. Yeah. It gave us... It wasn't like... And then you thought... Yeah, that's what I thought. When when he was piecing... Yeah. Like, shit, I was the same age. I mean, my blah, 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 you know, my daughter's 12, Betsy was 12. I thought it was going to be like a curse of the bell of just passed down from generation to generation. Oh, see, but that's another thing. And that's another thing that I was like, holy I thought fuck. Richard was going to, he was going to pay. Or like, he was going to do some stupid shit, too. That's what I thought. But once I got to the, like, once I realized what, I, what like, the thing was, I was like, holy shit. Betty is so her her subconscious is so scared of of what happened. Well, she's so scared of what had happened to her. She she's she's scared it might happen again. to her fucking daughter. It is all subconscious. So like, so subconscious. She's like I need to stop this. Yeah. So she. So stopped. what happened the first time? Mm-hmm. The yeah. rocks on the. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I was like, Yo, what the fuck is going on? I loved it, dude. Pretty I sure loved that's it. what Richard was saying. What the fuck is going on? Thought he's we were like, done with this shit. He's like, oh shit, here we go again. <laughs> I was I was See DJ Kelly in the background. Another one. I was back here when I was reading that part. Once I got to that part, I was like, yo, what the I lit I lit I was so into it because you know, because like yeah. the way my process is I read ahead. Uh-huh. Like for, for, for example, like if I'm scripting, uh-huh. I give myself to have to script at least 10 pages of the book, right. which gives me at least two or three pages of script. Uh-huh. So I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to read the 15 pages I have to read. I read it at once, and then I go back, and then I highlight the parts that I think are needed, things that might paint the, the bigger story. Yeah. So after I had read it the first time, I was like, holy shit, she was raped. And then the second time while I was going back and highlighting things, uh-huh. 
if it hit me even harder with with the more with more of the details. Yeah. And I literally got up and walked around with my head behind my head going like, "Yo, what the fuck?" Because I wasn't I wasn't expecting yeah. this to be the fucking the plot twist. It yeah. was. I was like, "Fuck." Especially like the way the story started first, with like freaking John Bell talking shit or not not talking shit, but him like trying to win the land with Kate Bats, and then Kate Bats just saying you. You're gonna fucking pay for this shit, and then fucking witches pops out. It's like, oh shit, you fucked up, John. Oh yeah, and then in the book too, Richard's like, oh yeah, it, everything that happened with old Kate, that was just a coincidence. The old dog, the big dog we saw, coincidence. Right. The big bird, coincidence. coincidence. The no. little girl dr- hanging from the tree, that was a coincidence. And he talks about like during that time, there was a lot of settlers moving from east to west. So a lot uh-huh. of people, a lot of rich people, yeah. would would. Cut through red, we cut through red river and all these towns, yeah, yeah. and maybe the little girl dressed in green was just some little girl that was just that was just stopped that had just stopped by and she was just playing around. What, what do they call those type of towns? Like drift towns or something? Like settler, like yeah, like little yeah. drift towns. Yeah. So John's like the the fact that the old Kate decided to curse the bells in front of everybody, the fact that they saw this black dog and this big ass bird led to everyone led to everyone having. Being able to believe the whole Bell Witch even more. So this, this, this was in John's favor, right? Because it was kind of like, oh, yeah, this is happening because of that. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Ha- it ain't happening because of me. So John thought, John thought he had found an out. It was like, yeah. oh, it's, it's old Kate. She's, well, John really thought it was old Kate. Yeah. But it just turned out that the, the Betsy just, it was just, for, everything that had happened has just set the stage for the perfect haunting. So now, question Did Kate Bats actually do? Freaking conjure up the spirit. No, no. Kate, that bat had nothing to do with it. So you just literally <clears throat> just said, "I curse you," but I was just like her, just talking shit. She was just her talking shit. Damn. And because the old um, the witch says it, because Betsy was there, because Betsy was there and she was so young mm-hmm. when it when that happened, she believed it herself, because she didn't manifest the, the spirit, the witch on purpose. It's not like she's like, "I need someone to protect me. Let me let, let me do the spell." Yeah. It just came out of her subconsciously. And subconsciously, she thought that old Kate was the one who made the who conjured up the spirit, which is why the spirit at one point said, "I am Kate Bats, witch." Oh, so you could say Cat Bats, Kate Bats, planted yeah. the seed. Yeah, yeah, hmm. that's a good ass series, man. It's it a good ass book. So I hope you guys enjoy this series. And again, the fucking source for this three part series. There's a book called The Bell Witch, An American Haunting by Brent Monahan. So if you guys want to check out this book, look at the episode show notes. I, all three parts, including this one, all have the link, have the Amazon link. All you got to do is just click on the link and you just instant buy. You just one click buy and it's yours and you'll get it tomorrow. No, you click the link and it's already instant buy. And it comes to my house. Boop. It comes to your house? <laughs> it comes to my house. Directly links their PayPal account and then shipping. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it was an amazing series. It was a good one. It was a really I, good one. I did not in a million years think this was that was going to be the outcome of, of like the whole thing. Yeah. And also, while, and also, while I was doing research. Um. Uh, what's the Ghost Hunters? The the ones with the douchey bro as the host. Oh. The dude with the full hog? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it, go, it was really called Ghost Hunters. Oh, it's called yeah, Ghost Hunters? Well, yeah, yeah. well, they have an episode on the Bell Witch. Uh-huh. 
And for whatever reason, the whole episode takes place. Like, oh, let's go to the Bell Witch Cave. Like, ooh. Like, the Bell Witch Cave is where the little kid got yeah. stuck. Like, what the f- like, what? For whatever reason, that's like the whole thing. Like, it's okay. Oh, it's the cave of the Bell Witch. Like, she didn't live there. Well, according to any of this. They like to exaggerate, like, whatever little detail they have. But they visited the house. Like, the whole, most of the things happened at the house. They're like, oh, yeah, there's a house. Let's check out the Bell Witch Cave. Everyone's like, ooh, let's go. Oh, yeah. And they spend the episode with the readings at the cave. Like, yeah. But whatever. But the, like the crazy thing is, this Bell Witch story had been known for years, for years, for years since the 1800s. But it wasn't until 1995 that this manuscript hit, that this yeah. manuscript had come out. Yeah. So these details that you heard today weren't available or weren't known to anybody up until the last what 30, year, maybe 30 years, 25 years. Uh-huh. So it's <sighs> crazy. <clears throat> it's crazy. So. Technically, Missy, the daughter, uh-huh. mm-hmm. she didn't want to re- reveal this. Then. Who know? Who knows? Because if she read it, which I'm pretty sure she did. Well, maybe, maybe her she, dad. Maybe she didn't read it. Richard was like, I mean, she still had all, like. Well, no, on. she didn't. She didn't publish the story. I know exactly because Richard fun. told her if once your mom is mm-hmm. with me in heaven, mm-hmm. then you have. The option now to post it yeah. or to reveal it. Mm-hmm. She never did. Yeah. So they found the manuscript in 19. Or when? 45. No. Or mm-hmm. when was this published? The book was published in 2001 or 2002, I think. But the, the manuscript, manuscript was found in 1995. Oh, 95. 1995. Said 45. No, 1995. 95. So where was this found at? The author of this book, Brent Monahan, yeah. has a friend, had a colleague that he met in college. Yeah. That friend has a friend. And that friend was cleaning out her old dead aunt's house. And in that attic, she found the manuscript. Who that aunt is, she, she doesn't she, she doesn't he doesn't want to say. Oh. Who the aunt is, who the aunt that yeah, died, he doesn't want to say. Yeah. Who the friend he met, does he's not gonna say the names, or who yeah. the person related to the aunt was. She's like, I'm keeping these names anonymous anonymous because I don't want Anyone to go bug them? Yeah. You want the douchey they, guy from Ghost Hunters start coming over here? He's and like, the door. he's like, yeah. they came to, they came to me to publish this book, and I'm doing it as a favor to them. If you guys have any questions, this should answer. If you guys, I don't know anything more than what this book says. So if you guys have any more questions, it's this That's is it. it. This is it. I'm not gonna come forward with any names unless they ask me to, or as they come forward first. Mm-hmm. But as far as we know, we don't know who. We don't know if this house was actually found in Missy's house. Because uh-huh. Missy, so this happened in 1842. This is happened like in the 1840s. Right. Where he published his manuscript. Uh-huh. Miss, no, actually, it couldn't have been Missy. Because Missy, been Missy. Missy at that point, she was 24. Uh-huh. Yeah, she was 24. Uh-huh. She was 24. Yeah, she was 24. That's probably like Missy's, Missy's daughter. daughter's or daughter. Daughter, daughter or something. But it never it was never opened. But she kept it. Yeah, she kept it because it was like a family heirloom. Yeah. But it was just never opened until that friend's friend went up to the Onstead attic. She's like, I said, do not open. Like, oh, let me open it. <laughs> and it was a uh, it was either it was a manuscript or next to Necromonica. Oh fuck! <sighs> so it's like uh, I'll take the story. But again, the source, the book is the Bell Witch, and American Haunting, Brent. By Brent 
Monahan. And he talks about this whole experience with him dealing with, with like the author and the preface of the book. It's maybe like nine pages. Mm. So he's read about what his like thing was, where he's like, you know what? Before I published it, I wanted to make sure it was for real too. So I, I went and visited Tennessee. I went and visited this place, the river that's no longer standing. It's just buildings. Yeah. There are a few houses here and there, but it's just like it's kind of like when we go to Idaho. There's like a farm, like a farmhouse here, and you have to drive a while for you to see the next farm. That's how that area is. And he says that there are people that live in that area that still have that is still like a little like hick touristy attraction yeah, yeah. where you go and you pay somebody like, oh, here's $15 and they'll show you the Bill Witch Cave and they'll take you inside. And one of the ladies that he interviewed, she's like, yeah, we don't, it's like that legend, that legend has been passed down from generations, generations. So like, yeah, and we, hear, sometimes we hear things in the cave. We hear some things in the Bell Witch Cave and we take people as far down as we know we're able to go. Remember, it's like a 500 fucking foot drop. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah, we just take them inside. They take their pictures and stuff. And then we're like, all right, we got to go. All right, it's getting too loud in here. Let's bounce. That's the Bell Witch. I hope you guys enjoyed it because I enjoyed the living shit out of it. I've, I've worked more on these three episodes than I did in the five of Gilda Ray. Really? Yeah. I believe it. <laughs> the, on part three alone, I did almost 20 hours of research. Yeah. 20 hours from yeah, just reading, highlighting, and scripting. I believe it. Fuck you guys. <laughs> but if no one has anything else, it's getting late. It is getting late. It's Kinda Sunday night. Archie's 11 o'clock at night. It's Archie, 11. Archie should have been in bed like three hours ago. Yeah, it should have been Mimi's already because I'll wake up in, at four. I ain't waking up till nine, so I'm good. So if, you guys don't, so if you guys don't have anything else to add again, you guys add us on Instagram, Weird History, it would tell Spot to look at all these pictures everything of that nature to find out what we're doing for the for the future episodes and if no one has anything else to add we are the weird history it retells pod if it can't hit you then i can hit it